In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Today's Gospel, today on the Feast of Saint Charles Borromeo, great bishop from Milan, we have the Gospel about the parable of the unjust steward. Chapter 16 of St. Luke, where the Lord tells this story about a rich man who had a steward who was reported to him for squandering his property. Probably this rich man had entrusted the steward with his, with his lands, with his fields, and he would have a number of uh, tenant farmers who would operate these fields, the master's land, and they would pay a privilege for being able to use these fields, or at least a portion of the fields. And uh, this was a common way in which people would get rich, they would own land, and then they would receive a, a kind of a rent from all the people that used the land, usually much poorer people. And of course, to do that, they needed a steward. Somebody would be able to take care of the land, take care of the fields, and ensure that all the money owed to the, to the landowner would come to him. So it was an important responsibility. He was a manager, he was a steward, but he didn't own the land. It was clearly owned by this rich man. And there is much that we can learn from this passage so centered on the steward. So this man was squandering his property. and The rich man summoned him and said, what is this I hear about you? Prepare a full account of your stewardship because you can no longer be my steward. So the rich man had heard from probably from some of these tenant farmers. He'd heard from the neighboring farmers how this steward wasn't really doing his job and he was ready to fire him. He was not really doing his job well and probably skimming off a lot of the revenue for himself. But that word, give a full account of your stewardship. It's a, an image that we will have to consider also in our life because we too are stewards of our life. Everything we have, we've been given. There's nothing that we have that we haven't been some way given. Our time, our intellect, our abilities. And it's quite striking how one day we'll have to give an account. The Lord's going to say, okay, give an account of your stewardship. I gave you a certain amount of time. I gave you family. I gave you this and that. Okay, so what did, what did you do with it? It's not that the Lord doesn't know, right? but he wants us really to examine our own life 
and see with what responsibility are we taking care of what we've been given. That's, that's what stewardship is. That is, we understand that it is something we've been entrusted with a great, of great value, and we've been given a responsibility. We've been given a responsibility for our, our time on this earth, and we have to make it bear fruit, bear fruit with qualities, with virtue, with knowledge, and it is important that we put aside any temptation towards passivity, just kind of living our life and enjoying our life, but rather we have to live it in such a way that we bear a lot of fruit, both in our knowledge, we acquire knowledge, we acquire good habits, good virtues, and also that we bear the fruit of apostolate, eh? that we do not allow for everything that we've acquired just to stay with ourselves. And that's the basis of apostolate. So he's asked to give an account. You can no longer be my steward. And the steward said to himself, what shall I do? Now that my master is taking a position of steward, the, the position of steward away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do, so that when I'm removed from the stewardship, they will welcome me into their homes. He's probably thinking of some of those, uh, those farmers that uh, had been you know, renting the property, some of those tenant farmers. He called in his master's debtors, one by one. To the first he said, How much do you owe my master? He replied, One hundred measures of olive oil. He said to him, Here is your promissory note. Sit down and quickly write one for fifty. Then to another he said, And you, how much do you owe? He replied, One hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Here is your promissory note. Write one for eighty. And the master commended the dishonest steward for acting prudently or acting shrewdly. For the children of this world are more prudent in dealing with their own generation than the children of light. So it's a, it's a curious statement uh, of our Lord here about you know, commending the dishonest steward for acting shrewdly. Or it says here prudently, it was shrewdly, prudently. Because the children of this world are more prudent, more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the children of the light. And we, we of course, are the children of the light. What is our Lord really saying? This steward was dishonest, he was shrewd, and he got what he wanted. He set himself up for a very good pension. But it was at the expense of his own integrity. He somehow managed to skim off the top and, of course, got these people to pay. Had he, had he charged them the full amount, they might not have paid. And so he... He lied about what they really owed. And, and it's this lack of integrity, this, this uh, duplicity that we have to consider. Some people want to omit this passage because they think it seems to give praise to trickery or dishonesty. But, of course, when we read the Gospel, the Gospel always has to teach us something or a teaching that is always in unity with the rest of the gospel. This is what the father of the church, uh, St. Athanasius, spoke about when he gave rules of interpretation of scripture. 
And he gave one fundamental rule of thumb that was followed throughout the centuries, right? And that is when you're interpreting or doing exegesis of Scripture, you must follow what he called the rule of faith. That is, it means that you, anything you interpret in the Scripture must always be in unity with the rest of the Scripture, and in particular with the rule of faith, that is, with the magisterium, with the church teaches, with the creed. If it goes against that, well, then, that is, if... If your interpretation goes against that, then it, then you've made a bad interpretation. So if you were to interpret here that it is good to to act, uh, you know, dishonestly, well, no, it's not good. It's that that would be the wrong conclusion. Right? Just because the master praised the dishonesty of his manager doesn't mean that we should be dishonest. And uh, and so. What, nevertheless, are we going to learn from this? Eh? Because the servant had been, we are told, squandering the property of the, of the landowner. He'd been squandering it. This is the same word that is used with regards to the prodigal son, who had received that inheritance from his father. But he too, he squandered it. And that is, he used it for really frivolous and licentious things. He used the, the, the money he had, but he squandered it. He didn't make good use of it at all. To squander is to, to waste, to misuse very valuable resources. And, and so, naturally, just because the, the master praised uh, the shrewdness of his steward does not mean that God is praising this action, because he was saving himself. But really, at what cost? At the cost, ultimately, of his, of his integrity. I mean, the Lord seems to assume here that that we understand that even though he acted brilliantly, it does not mean that he will be rewarded. He acted brilliantly, shrewdly. And why does he say this, that the children of this world are more prudent or more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the children of light? And it's as though he's suggesting, okay, he's asking us, you know, where do you really put all your efforts in. In what do you dedicate your your intellect, your energies, your efforts? In other words, where do you act most shrewdly? And could it be that you act more uh, shrewdly or you know, giving more importance, for example, to get good marks in increasing your GPA? Is that good? Yes, that's good. Obviously, we have to do that. No, but comparatively, how much effort and how much desire do you put into making your interior life grow, your love of God grow, your, your life of virtue? How much effort do you put into just growing in terms of becoming a person of true integrity, into building up those reserves of grace through your closeness with the Lord, through your moments of Time of prayer, where you get you gain peace, you gain a deeper knowledge of what God's plan is for you, or just through your mortification, this opportunity we have in each mortification to somehow die to ourselves, to get detached from our love for comfort, and upon offering the Lord a mortification, we're somehow growing in interior life, we're growing in our love for God. How much energy do you really put into all that? 
It's, it's a responsibility we have. Or are we quite passive in our interior life, but put all our eggs in the basket of, let's say, worldly success, worldly recognition. Mm-hmm. And of course, you're young. I know you're young. You have your whole life ahead of you. Ahead of you. But really, we can ask, where do I invest most all the capital of my life? And that's what we have to ask ourselves. I think that's what he says here. The children of this world are more prudent, more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the children of light. Who are the children of light? Well, we are the children of light in the sense that when we were baptized, the light of God... Sort of was lit in our soul, the grace of God. And if we really desired to be saints, we would you know, light that lamp, make it into a raging fire of God's grace. But in each case, we have to see where am I putting effort? Where am I really putting all my drive into? There's a great point here from the way our father says what zeal people put into their earthly affairs dreaming of honors striving for riches bent on sensuality men and women rich and poor old and middle aged and young and even children all of them the same But when you and I put the same zeal into the affairs of our souls, we will have a living and operative faith. And there will be no obstacle we cannot overcome in our apostolic endeavors, in our apostolic undertakings. some Some of the first young men and women, too, that met St. Josemaria, they were very young when he met them. They were students studying architecture or engineering, but he lit up something in their soul, such that they put zeal in their studies, but even more zeal in their interior life, in their desire to kind of contribute to that raging fire of interior life. And they took many risks to to do apostolate. They would go to different countries, even though they were very young, they didn't know the language. They would rent houses and start the first centers to spread the message of sanctification in ordinary life. For them to go through all the sacrifices that they went through, starting in new countries, or, you know, for example, starting in Japan. Imagine you're a, you're a Spanish fellow who knows Spain quite well, and you go to a completely unknown country like Japan because you want to spread the love of God, spread the message of Opus Day. And this is what this one fellow, his name was Juan, uh, Juan Ramon Madurga. And uh, he originally went to, to England, then he went back to Spain, then he went to Rome, he was ordained, and then he went to uh, Japan. You know, he didn't know anybody in Japan. I mean, it was, it really took a lot of courage to do that. And I remember seeing a photo 
of the first letter that came back from Japan to Saint Jose Maria. And it said, uh, Jose Maria Escrivá, 73 Bruno Bozzi, Rome. And it was sent with a, with a Japanese stamp. And that letter was like an airmail letter like we used to have. And Saint Jose Maria wrote on the, on the cover of that envelope, the first letter from Japan, exclamation point. And with such enthusiasm did he receive that first letter. And of course, behind that was this sense of adventure. The sense of adventure for doing anything possible to do apostolate. You know, that's why Pope Francis has spoken to young people using that expression, Ased Leo, Ased Leo, which means go and make a mess, go and make a ruckus. Don't be afraid of, you know, of, of ruffling people's feathers. Maybe we're afraid of speaking too clearly about certain moral subjects, uh, certain things that are not trending exactly today, and we're maybe afraid. And we're not, perhaps, applying all that shrewdness to our apostolic endeavors of going to meet new people, of meeting, going to some club so we can meet new, new people that we can talk to, to them about the love of God. And, uh, you know, one person that we can apply that to, certainly, is St. Charles Borromeo. St. Charles Borromeo. He, it's his feast day today, and he was a very good steward of the things that he had received from God. He was born in Lago Maggiore, that's in the northern part of Italy, there near, uh, near Milan. That's the lake where the famous uh, novel... The Promessi Sposi there takes place by Manzoni. Well, that was later. That was in the 19th century. But, but he was born there in the 16th century, born in 1538. And this is at the height of the Protestant Reformation and during the Council of Trent, where the church was really going through a great upheaval. But he, at the age of 12, he already wanted to dedicate himself, his entire life, to the church. But he already had high aspirations. He was of noble birth, so he would have inherited a large sum of money. And in fact, he, he knew this, and yet his most important task for him was to overcome a great defect that he had as a youth, which was that he spoke with a stutter, and he spoke very slowly. He just could not speak correctly, and it was humiliating for him. He would speak, I don't know how, how he speak, spoke, but, it, but the people mentioned it. And so he just, I've got, to, I've got to improve this. I've got to, and he just, I don't know, he did exercise and he, and he overcame that. But he overcame it, not just to be kind of popular, but to be able to speak with uh, effectiveness about the love of God. And he, he faced many challenges, but the teachers that he had were impressed by the zeal he put into overcoming these challenges. And then he went to the University of, of uh, Padua and, uh, and he learned Latin there on, on his own. And his teachers were also very impressed. Then he went on to study canon law and, and other ecclesiastical disciplines. And he was very praised for his hard work and how thorough he was. And then suddenly his father dies. And he's again given a large inheritance. And then his uncle, 
becomes Pope, Pope Pius IV in 1559. And his, po his uncle, of course, loved his nephew and was ready to give him anything. And in fact, his uncle named him a cardinal. He was only like 23 years old. He was just a layman. He names, you know, I'm the Pope, I name you cardinal. No problem, eh? You are my nephew, eh? And, uh, you know, and uh, he was given huge responsibilities. He was 23 years old, he, you know, and he was given, like, responsibilities over the papal states and who knows what other, um, you know, tasks he was given. But it was all due to the fact that his, his uncle was the Pope. And there was obviously a pretty clear, you know, dimension of corruption there, but he was, he was just like in that life. And, and yet he had this reputation of being very idealistic and wanting to reform things. And then he was sent to Milan, to the diocese there, where corruption was rampant all over the place. People were given uh, jobs and tasks just because they knew somebody. At the same time, the Protestant Reformation was spreading like crazy throughout Northern Europe, and it was constantly threatening to come down to Italy. Imagine if the Protestant Reformation and its ideas had come down to Italy. I mean, who knows if we had become, we would have become Catholic now. And of course, the greatest defense that he had against Protestant errors or doctrinal errors was this demand to restore and reform the integrity of the of the church and that's what he absolutely wanted and he put all his zeal into that and he really knew his mission he knew in what he wanted to put his all his strengths you know in put all his zeal into that to kind of like clean up the church for the glory of god now upon doing that naturally this made him many enemies and there was like some group that he, he saw that they were very corrupt and I don't know what he did exactly, but they even tried to assassinate him. They, they hired a, a hitman. I think he had a kind of a, quote, gun. And uh, in those days, this is the 16th century, so they weren't exactly the most uh, accurate um, instruments, but they shot him and they missed. So he, he, th he survived uh, thanks to the God's protection. He probably had a very good guardian angel, you know, but... Uh, but he survived that. And like the other thing I heard that he, uh, that he restored was like a lot of the churches were very beautiful and super, super ornate. And one of the things that made them so ornate was that they had these massive uh, funerary monuments that belonged to some of the nobles of the area. So you would go along the side, you know, in the, in the aisles of the church and the side aisles and side chapels, you would have these massive, massive uh, tombs with statues and stuff dedicated to these nobles, right? and uh, of course only people who could really afford that. Uh, you know these really elaborate tombs would would do that, and so he put a stop to that. Uh, and then at one point the plague hit and there was famine. You know it was the sort of the, the 16th century COVID of the time, right? And uh, of course there was famine, so he used his own personal um, you know uh, wealth to to feed thousands and thousands of people, to help people. And then there was heresy, there was witchcraft going on, stuff, all kinds of stuff. But basically, he just sought to promote the Council of Trent eh, and apply it.
apply it. It's very similar to what Pope John Paul II did, right? Pope John Paul II wanted really to promote and put into practice all the teachings of the Second Vatican Council. Well, in his case, it was uh, the Council of Trent, and he was so zealous that he eventually, I don't know exactly what happened, but he, he got some kind of illness, got some kind of viral infection, and he died at the age of 46. But he was truly remembered for his honesty, for his desire to clean up, and just this desire to apply the teachings of the Council of Trent against all those errors. And and so that that was, like he's a, you could say he was a, a child of light with, a, with his baptism, and yet in some way he was fighting those who were acting more shrewdly than him. Why? Not so much because he was, he was shrewd, but because he deeply felt this mission and he would not accept in any way to act dishonestly as was often the case in that period because there was a lot of corruption. We should ask ourselves, if we want to give an account of our life, can we really say that we always act honestly, with integrity? And in this world now we have many occasions to kind of sidestep the truth, not always say the truth, but upon doing that we advance. I heard about a guy who was trying to sell his car and it was an old car, you know, I don't know, 10 years on it or whatever it was, eight years. And um, he was saying, I'm going to try to get good money for this car, you know, and uh, so I can buy myself a better car. And so he asked his friend, you know, what do you think I can get for this car? Well, that car, you know, it's a, whatever it is, it's a sedan and, you know, how many kilometers does it have? Well, it has 200,000 kilometers of life. For that, you're not you, you're max. You're gonna max it out at six thousand dollars if you're lucky. And he said, "But if you want to make a good amount, like if you want to get ten thousand, I have a trick. You just go inside under the hood and you lower the number of kilometers. You see, you go in, and there's a seal there. But I I know a way to lift the seal, and you go and you put fifty thousand kilometers, right? And nobody will know, and you'll make your ten thousand dollars." Of course, he didn't do that. You know. Of course, it can be done. That would be very shrewd. That would be very, very shrewd, right? And we, we should never do it because it was it'd be a straight-up lie. It would be, you know, a dishonest. And so I don't think you'll ever do that. But, you know, maybe there are things we've gained ahead out of dishonesty, out of that bad shrewdness. What we want to put is all our zeal into our soul into our love for God, into our apostolate, into growing in grace, just in the way we love the Mass, in the way we do our prayer, in the way we, the, the, the energy and the, the zeal we put just into our love for our Blessed Mother. Let us ask her, and, and let's ask in particular the Holy Spirit, so that He will help us in our day-to-day activity to really put love of God, put gratitude, put acts of praise, acts of love. And the more we do that, the more the Holy Spirit will give us His grace. Because it's logical. If we give a lot of thanks to God, if we, that is, if we live a real life of gratitude, always for the good that we have received, naturally the Holy Spirit will give us His graces and give us His light and so that we can understand our mission and live it to the full. Our Blessed Mother, who is our, our Queen, the Queen of Apostles, She'll help us to put that zeal, that apostolic zeal and zeal in our interior life.
I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you've communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.